0: You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders.
1: Another journey to Europe, another tragedy at sea. Another sinking off the coast of Libya. Here, at least 20 drowned.
2: The body of a baby no more than a year old was pulled from the sea on Friday, May 27th after a wooden boat carrying dozens of migrants bound for Europe capsized.
1: Once again, the human cost of the migrant crisis is revealed by the bodies retrieved, and many of those that survive this perilous journey face further dangers in their quest for a better life in Europe. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders. We are currently facing the greatest displacement of humanity since the Second World War. More than 60 million people have been forced from their homes by conflict or oppression, from such places as Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia and Eritrea. Since the start of this decade, a tiny but growing percentage of these desperate men, women and children have risked their lives on overcrowded boats to knock on Europe's front door. According to the United Nations Refugee Agency, since 2010, more than 12,300 people have tragically gone missing or perished making this crossing. But Europe is not always so welcoming. Political leaders, like UK Prime Minister David Cameron, are worried about a so-called swarm of economic migrants entering Europe. Any compassion people may have had appears to be dwindling as governments across Europe are pushing a policy aimed at deterring refugees and migrants, rather than finding solutions to the problems that are driving them to leave their homes. By offering significant financial support to countries such as Turkey in exchange for agreeing to host more refugees and stopping them trying to reach Europe, we are trapping people in countries that are already overwhelmed. In Lebanon, for instance, over a quarter of the population are now Syrian, placing significant strain on services such as healthcare and schools. This means that these countries are often not able to meet the needs of those seeking refuge and don't feel able to accept more people. Despite the increasing difficulty, though, the European Union still believes that between 2016 and 2018, 3 million people will attempt to make the journey across the Mediterranean. In the summer of 2015, as the crisis in the Mediterranean and Aegean seas grew worse and European rescue efforts were put on hold, MSF made the decision to step in and launch three search and rescue boats. Canadian doctor Simon Bryant was one of the first aboard the Phoenix, a boat owned by rescue organisation Migrant Offshore Aid Station, on which MSF ran a clinic. In today's episode, we'll be bringing you a story written by Simon, describing his worst day aboard the Phoenix. We'll be speaking to Simon after we hear his story, so make sure to keep listening. This is a true story with the words read by actor Charlie de Bromhead.
0: We're now motoring back to the rescue zone off Libya, after disembarking well over 400 people in southern Italy. This was our longest and most difficult voyage so far. One intense rescue day then a long and eventful grind north, but that's another story. Some of us were pretty much shattered by the end of it, I think. But it's not about us, and we're getting over it. On the morning of the 25th of August, the Swedish Coast Guard were using two small but powerful rescue craft to stabilise a wooden boat carrying over 450 people against the side of their large vessel, the Poseidon. The Swedes accepted our offer of medical assistance. It was an ugly scene with some people reportedly seriously ill and others deceased. People die in these wooden migrant boats due to the toxic fumes of leaked fuel, oil, and engine exhaust, perhaps in combination with heat stroke, dehydration, and physical crushing as people and the boat move in a swell. Others drown, trapped inside a leaky or capsized boat, or unable to swim when only that could save them without assistance. Mary Joe, an MSF nurse, and I sped over from the Phoenix by rib, a rigid-hulled inflatable boat, and boarded the still-crowded wooden boat. From there we jostled our way onto a narrow gangway leading to the deck of the Poseidon, where we found a medic attending to three or four conscious, recovering people. They'd initially needed carrying on board, but clearly didn't require us now. My thoughts immediately turned to anybody still below deck on the wooden boat, I proceeded there directly clambering down through a small hatch at the rear. There was enough light from the small hatches and my headlamp to make out a tragic tangle of bodies. At that point training cut in and emotions took a back seat though the adrenaline flowed. Moving forward I quickly checked each person still above the incoming water sloshing around in the bottom of the boat for signs of life. All were dead. Near the front. A high-pressure air hose running through another hatch to clear fumes hissed and flailed about like something possessed. A small backpack of two tanks of compressed air with a mouthpiece lay in the bilge below. Some rescuer must have already been there. Mary Jo dropped down to join me through the forward opening. We promptly finished checking that area, to no avail, and climbed back into the daylight. Almost everybody had proceeded up the gangway to the Poseidon, but four people lay motionless around that hatch opening. For three of them, it was clearly too late. But the very last one I checked was still breathing. He made no response as I inserted an oral airway. We got some oxygen going and established communication with our team on the Phoenix. I tersely questioned a helpful Swedish medic about the available medical resources and personnel on the Poseidon and learned by radio about those on a nearby Italian Navy frigate called the Grecale. Our patient remained breathing but profoundly unconscious, unresponsive to any stimulus. With his obviously injured lungs and poisoned system, his condition threatened to deteriorate even further. It was decision and action time. We strapped him to a stretcher and transported him back to the Phoenix for intubation, in preparation for a helicopter evacuation to hospital, on the small Italian island of Lampedusa. Without needing to give him any medication, I inserted an endotracheal tube into his windpipe. We then suctioned out large quantities of thick secretions and his breathing improved marginally. A fast rescue boat from the Grecale came alongside the Phoenix and we loaded and left. One step followed another, even as my colleagues were busy transferring hundreds of people from yet another overloaded wooden boat that had incredibly appeared on the scene. A rubber dinghy too full of people was also soon to follow. What is this madness all about? En route in the Grekali's fast rescue boat, I leaned closer and told the unconscious man that he wasn't alone, that we were doing our best to help him. I believe that's okay, and there's nothing left to do at the time. I mean... I'd want somebody to talk to me in that situation, so far away. So I do it. The sailors on the Grikali used a powerful crane to snatch the rescue boat with us all in it, about ten metres up to the deck level, to unload. The crew were bustling about refuelling and checking a most beautiful drab grey twin-engine Bell 212 helicopter on the rear helideck for the long hop over the water to Lampedusa. I carefully went over drugs and procedures with the Grekali's physician, who would fly with the patient. The next morning, to my immense relief and gratification, I learned they made it. Strange, but I still don't remember much going through my mind on that first wooden boat, besides having us responders stay safe and wanting to quickly find anybody still alive. At first, I counted bodies as I checked them, but... Soon gave that up as something that wouldn't make any difference. The Swedes later cut the deck open with a chainsaw, recovering 52 corpses. Looking at a picture much later, I was surprised to see a small cabin-like structure on the wooden boat, very close to where we found the survivor. I had no recollection of it whatsoever. The rest of that day gave me no chance to mull over events either, until much later. After leaving our intubated patient in the capable hands of the Italian physician on the Grecale, I was called to another unconscious person from the second boatload of people that the Phoenix was unloading. A fellow did fine, though, and I left him talking. Then I returned to the Grecale, since their physician was away on the Helivac, to assess people being rescued from a rubber dinghy nearby. All were in relatively good condition. One day, two wooden boats... One rubber dinghy, one helivac, over a thousand people rescued by three ships and fifty-two perfectly senseless deaths. The teamwork and effort involved were most impressive, but search and rescue isn't any solution to this absurd and appalling Mediterranean mess. This crisis, this exodus of refugees, migrants, people in flight, whatever words we choose to use don't make any difference safe ways for people to apply for asylum just might. These death trap boats are an abomination for which many people and policies can be held responsible. A journalist later asked me about the nationality of the deceased, noting that sub-Saharan Africans tend to end up below deck on these boats. I felt a flash of quiet rage at the question and the injustice. They were all simply people whose nationality was of no consequence. I managed to reply. May they rest in peace.
1: Since disembarking the Phoenix, Simon has returned home to Canada, where he's currently providing care for Inuit communities in its northern territories. Unfortunately, we are only able to contact him by phone, so apologies for the line quality this interview was recorded on the 27th of may in a week where more than 700 people were believed to have drowned after three separate boats capsized in the mediterranean well welcome simon thank you very much for coming on to the podcast oh thank you nick so um yeah i mean your time on the phoenix was your first msf mission how did you feel when you were told you were going to be spending months aboard a ship in the mediterranean rather than uh you know maybe going to somewhere like central africa
2: well i i Surprised, of course, but um, you know, I was ready for anything anyway um, and um, didn't know exactly quite what to think. Uh, I felt excited, of course, and uh, I felt prepared, though, and I felt like there was a, a great uh, team around me from the very beginning. You know, I, I just felt very supported and prepared for whatever m- what was coming.
1: You, you said in your post we've just heard, um, you make quite an impassioned statement about the refugee crisis. As, some, you know, as someone who's had first-hand experience, is there anything that you think we can do to be changing public opinion?
2: Oh dear! Well, I mean, look what's happening in this past week. You know, you see live footage on the news of a an overcrowded boat overturning um, in the Mediterranean,
0: and there are numerous
2: incidents already this year. Um, and I, you know, the, this this year is like a replay. It's, it's just um, it's just a little bit heartbreaking to see the news, and it's just incredible when you see live footage. Uh, on the news the television news of you know a ship act a boat actually capsizing it shouldn't it shouldn't have to happen but um as long as it is I mean, it's important to have people out there to help well, what's probably needed is, is is some safe legal way for people to apply for asylum um... not from north africa uh... You know, rapid processing I mean, it, it it just it does seem that there's a flow of people and uh... I, I really I don't have answers. you know It seems obvious that we have to rescue people from 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 peril at sea, but then more and more people put themselves in that position um, because they feel they have no alternative. I guess we have to uh, make it such that they see some other alternative.
1: Could you describe how it felt sort of being on a ship? before before a rescue so you know it's it's a very quiet empty ship and then all of a sudden within the space of a few oh, hours uh, you know, Nick, a... I,
2: I learned uh, even as i was sleeping i was lying in my bed at my bunk in the morning uh, uh, i learned to know the sounds of the ship and if i heard the bow thruster engine turn on i would get up get dressed and get ready even before the knock on the door because i knew that that meant we were approaching something it felt uh, always tense for me, always a bit tense because I never was sure quite what we would encounter. Mm.
1: The post that we've just heard describes a, a, a horrific, unfortunate incident. I mean, was that was that one of the worst days you had on 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 the Phoenix? Most
2: definitely, that was that was the worst day. It was a very long day, and uh, it was great teamwork from everybody. And uh, you know, sadly, sadly, it just highlighted the the the, uh, the, the problem. It still remains kind of a touchstone in my experience. Um, It just underlines the importance of of some alternative solution.
1: Um, Hmm. How how did it feel getting down onto that boat?
2: um, Just one step after another, Nick. I mean, it felt uh, a lot of adrenaline running, but um, this kind of do what needs to be done and try and, figure out the next step in the process and <clears throat> take care of it and, um, get on with it, you know, because time matters and, uh, safety matters. Um, it's almost like I just didn't want to leave the situation thinking, Oh, perhaps I could have done something different. And uh, we did, you know, I, we succeeded in that, you know, we, we did our best, uh, We did everything we were called on for and could do. And, um, Unfortunately, you know, we weren't able to actually save anybody's life. The gentleman we prepared and transported to Italy died uh, some days later in intensive care. But uh, we did the right thing. We did the right human thing by by trying.
1: What were people's immediate reactions to being rescued? I mean, when, when they when they got on well, the boat, could you, I, you sort of describe that scene?
2: You know, it varied. I mean. I'm going to say, you know, that through that summer, we, we rescued just shy of 7,000 people. And, you know, I would say 10% of them from, from vessels, either the rubber rafts or the wooden boats that were, you know, in the process of, of sinking. And um, uh, they were in dire straits. So those people would come on board really uh, almost panicky at times, you know, just, uh, just in a very agitated state and it would take them quite a little while to calm down, and then they'd sleep for a long time. Um, Others, you know, seemed to sort of breathe on board from from craft that, although they looked good at the moment, you certainly wondered whether they were ever gonna make Italy or in what state the people would be in if the craft ever made it to Italy. Um, there often didn't seem to be enough fuel on board to to make the distance, or water, or supplies, because everybody was so crowded. It wasn't wasn't uncommon to hear that um, they'd had a few belongings but been forced to leave them behind on embarkation. People had very little with them, very very little, and the, that all the vessels were so crowded that um, well, you can see you know you can see the images all over uh, how they are.
1: I mean, going going back to being on the boat, I mean, was there ever any? You, know, you were saying that you were sort of you were always on call, but was there ever any any downtime? I can imagine it must have been a really sort of claustrophobic environment well, yes. for those. Well, I mean, uh, months you know, there were
2: end. a couple of other MSF uh, ships in the Mediterranean uh, last year, of course, um, and uh, then all the other resources. So we would head back to Malta a week and a month, and. Um, you know, reprovision and fix things up and resupply the ship and then have a a few days off in Malta, which was a bit surreal at times because uh, being such a holiday destination, you know, I mean, one or two occasions it literally went from, um, you know, watching the Malta Philharmonic Orchestra perform uh, in an ancient theater in Valletta to getting on the ship and within less than 24 hours you know, have a few hundred people on board that you've pulled out of, uh, you know, deflating rafts in the Mediterranean, and just a complete contrast—very mm. surreal. Yeah. Um, made me very feel very grateful for you know all the privilege I enjoy. I mean, I, I I really feel it's just a matter of of chance almost that you know you or I aren't born in a different time and place and end up in those circumstances um, or worse. Yeah. And uh, made me very grateful.
1: So um going back to the you know talking about the current climate um, there seems to be a certain level of compassion for you know people of uh, maybe of Syrian origin fleeing the, the Syrian civil war or Iraq or I- Afghanistan but there's there's less compassion for for people that are being considered economic migrants um, people that are just seeking a better life I mean, did you did you can you remember any stories of um, any people that were, you know, might have been considered economic migrants, um, and...
2: Well, well, that's an important question, Nick. That's a very important question, because I, it would be disingenuous for me to maintain that, you know, every last one of these people was, a, you know, an asylum seeker. So, um, one way to look at it is, I think, in 2015 or 14, about about half of those who applied for asylum in Europe um, received it, and then on appeal, I think another 10% or so, so something like 60% of the people who, whose cases were heard in those years, and they may in fact have arrived in Europe a couple of years before, um, actually received asylum. So that says something about the makeup of the, of the people. Um, yes, I do remember cases one fellow who actually—I don't know if he's the unluckiest or the luckiest person I've ever met—but um, survived Ebola. Actually, contracted and survived Ebola. Uh, sadly, unlike the uh, members of his immediate family, who all perished, and, and then in that ruined economy, he was also ostracized by his uh, his townspeople because. Of their beliefs about Ebola, so he left and made his way across the Sahara and through Libya, and then onto this wretched boat in the Mediterranean. And then, you know, he gets rescued from that onto the Phoenix. And then you look at him and think, well, is he what? Is he a refugee? Is he, you know, an economic migrant? Is he what? You know, he's he's just another person. And for me that the sort of touchstone was in their shoes what would I do and almost by definition in their shoes I I would have made a similar decision Um, sadly there were those who felt apparently that they they weren't aware of the risks that they would encounter in their voyage Uh, for example somebody from Nigeria northern Nigeria which is a, a pretty rough place can be you know with Boko Haram on the loose and um and the general circumstances there. But I remember this one fellow telling me, Well, if I'd known what the Sahara was gonna be like, I might not have left Nigeria, you know. And then actually if I'd known what Libya was gonna be like, I might have actually turned around and made my way back across the Sahara if that were possible. And then if I'd known what the boat was gonna feel like, I might have actually tried to get Back through Libya, back through the Sahara, uh, back to Nigeria, but it's almost like a cascade of increasingly um, desperate circumstances, a little bit out of control. Nothing is ever black or white, Nick. Um, you know, there are times when I wondered about the, sort of the ethics and the 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 um, utility of what we were doing, whether in fact, uh, and it would be disingenuous to in fact by providing such a rescue service you aren't just playing into the business model of the smugglers and encouraging that flow of people that, that, one has to think about that question um, but on the balance of things uh, I think we're doing more good than harm by being out there mm,
1: Definitely. Um, and, and what are you up to now?
2: Well, at the moment, I'm talking to you from uh, sort of Arctic Canada, uh, working up here with the Inuit population. So I'm in a little fly in community. I'm the only physician. I'm on duty 24 7 for a few weeks, and uh, it's been busy. Um, the suicide rate up here is 10 times the national average, and uh, a lot of the population is very young. Fortunately, the, the nurses who work here are very competent and um, we work well as a team. It, it snowed a couple of days ago, um, <laughs> but it uh, it's a wonderful place to be uh, in many respects. Mm. I, I uh, have a lot of respect for the people who choose to make this their full time work, um, as I do for those people in MSF who return again and again.
1: That'd be great. Do you, do you think you'll blog again when you're when you're in the field?
2: It, it depends on the circumstances. Um, if, if time if time allows. Did
1: you, did you find that? Um that writing in that in that downtime you had was it was it for a therapeutic reason or was it more for you know wanting to get the word out about what what you were
2: seeing? Well, a bit of both. I mean, I discovered in writing that um, I discovered ideas about the situation and, and, and feelings that I wasn't otherwise aware of. I realize now when I look back on on the blogs and I reread them, I, I, it brings back an emotion from the time. And um, the purpose of it being to communicate also, you know, to anybody who cared to read what was going on so that they could make decisions accordingly. There's something different about being right there on the spot versus just reading about events in the news or watching them on television.
1: Thank you so much for talking with us today, Simon. Um, Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure.
2: Oh, thank you. It's always... uh, it's always good to, um, to have these kinds of opportunities, because I, I, I still think it's important for people to, to be aware. There's more and more that, that can be done, and it's important not to feel overwhelmed by it all, but just to do some small thing, just, just do some small thing towards a solution. Yeah. Thank you. Nick.
1: So that's it for this episode. We'd like to say a big thanks to everyone who's been listening and subscribed to the podcast so far. We'd love it if you could tell your friends and spread the word. If you have any questions about anything you've heard, make your way to msf.org.uk slash Simon and get in touch. Simon said he'd be happy to answer any of your questions. We've also posted links to other moving stories written by Simon during his time on the Med, as well as an interactive guide to the Phoenix. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Get in touch with us on Twitter at MSF underscore UK, on Instagram at Doctors Without Borders, or on Facebook. Next time on Everyday Emergency. The work is the best work you'll
2: ever do. It's real medicine and it's pure medicine. So you're really seeing the difference because you
0: are saving these people. You're saving babies, you're saving mothers.
1: We'll be hearing from American obstetrician and gynecologist Veronica Addis. Veronica recently returned from a remote region of South Sudan where she provided life-saving care to women struggling to give birth. Make sure to listen to episode 2 in our series for a background on the situation in South Sudan.
0: For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.